Amen. If you would take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 17. John 17, and we will be in verses 20 through 26 this morning. John 17, 20 through 26. And as we do each week, would you stand in honor of God's word as I read our text for this morning. Again, John 17, beginning at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Heavenly Father, God, as we look into your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would show us who you are, and as the scripture tells us, Lord, we would receive your word, your implanted word, which is able to save our souls. May we do all of this through the leading and the power of your Holy Spirit, for your glory, in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So George Mueller was born September the 25th, 1805, in Germany, and and he really lived Almost the, entire, um, almost the entire 19th century because he died on March 10th, 1898 at the age of 92. He was a man of singular faith. He was known, well known throughout his lifetime in England for his depth of faith, his knowledge of the scriptures, and his obedience to the Lord. Now, now, sometimes you can tell um, a, a minister and, and how well he's known and his power um, by the people he associates with. And, you know, when an evangelist comes, there are those who do the work that a lot of people don't see. They do the follow-up work. So once people come to faith in Christ, they're the ones who come afterward and help them come to know Christ better and learn how to read their Bibles and grow in their faith. Well, George Mueller did follow-up work for the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. You might know a pastor by who he fills the pulpit for. Um, And whenever uh, someone was gone, he would fill the pulpit sometimes. And he was a regular in filling the pulpit for none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And then you may know someone by whose career they launch or, or who influences them greatly. And Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission and the famous uh, and well-known missionary to China, his career was started because he was inspired by the teaching of George Mueller. Now, all of those things are amazing. All those things are true. But that's really not why George Mueller's known. George Mueller is known as a man of prayer. 
He is known, everything about him was about his life of faith and prayer to the Lord. He was persistent and he was particularly persistent in praying for those he knew who were not believers. I want to read you a quote from his autobiography. He said, quote, In November of 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years more elapsed and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. And day by day I continued to pray for them. And six years more passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. And these two remained unconverted. Now 36 years later in his personal diary... These two men were sons of one of his close friends. They were still not converted. And he wrote this 36 years later. But I hope in God and I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. Now approximately 55 years after he began to pray daily without interruption for these two men... They finally were converted, but it happened after George Mueller died. Now, a life spent, devoted in prayer. Much more could be said about this, and maybe we'll talk about it some other time. But the one thing we know for certain is that he gave an entire lifetime to fervent and devoted prayer for people he knew did not know Christ. And when we see a life like this, when we see the heart and mind of Jesus Christ this morning in this text, we should all be driven to declare one thing. That I should be someone who desperately desires my one to know the one. I'm going to say that again. I should be someone who desperately desires my one to know the one. Now, I don't want to, take, I don't want to take, assume anything. I want to explain really quickly what I mean by the one. And maybe you know what this means. But a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, the, the three parables. Uh, and we looked at one of them, the, the lost sheep, the parable of the lost sheep, where it says that a shepherd had a hundred sheep and one went out and he left the 99 and he went after the one. That, that little phrase, that's kind of where that's pulled from. But what it refers to is that one person in your life. Now, maybe you've got multiple, and that's perfectly fine if you have a 9 or a 12. That's great. But everybody should have at least a 1. And that is the person they know who is far from God and needs to know Jesus Christ. That's what I mean by the 1. Now, John 17 is a pretty amazing text. And and I would say, honestly, it it bears study for weeks on its own. But we're only going to look at the last section. So John 17 occurs right in the middle of something known as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, The Upper Room Discourse is when, uh, on the the night before Jesus was arrested, he sat down with his disciples in the Upper Room and they shared a a meal together. And they talked and, and those things. And Jesus taught them. And he began to teach them, and that's the upper room discourse. But then in John 17, 
Right after Jesus tells them that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Then in John 17, verse 1, it says, And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and that's what we're about to hear. All of John 17 is within the upper room discourse is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And the reason it's called a high priestly prayer is because Jesus is going to the Father on behalf of other people. That's what a priest did. A priest went to God on behalf of other people. So Jesus is praying for his disciples, and we'll see, not just his, the 11. So he begins in verse 1 of chapter 17 and works all the way through verse 5. And in that, he prays for his disciples that they would, that he, or I'm sorry, he prays for himself. He worships and praises God. Then he prays for himself that he would glorify the Father through his crucifixion. And then he says that we, he wants all of us uh, to know and to have eternal life, which is, verse 3, that we may know the Father, the only true God, and the one he sent, Jesus Christ. So from the very beginning, Jesus is praying for his disciples and everyone else that they would know him. But then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus begins to pray specifically for the 11 who are sitting there. Um, now, this, this is going to be fun. So you got to hang on. Because in this text, he switches back and forth using the same phrase, they and them. And it's going to get a little confusing if you don't hang on real tight. So, um, but in 6 through 19, he begins to pray for the, the 11 that are there specifically. And he is praying for them because he knows what will happen to them. He knows that as they remain devoted to him and they preach the message of the gospel, people are going to hate them, people are going to mistreat them, and ultimately people are going to kill all of them except the Apostle John. And so he is praying for them specifically, and that's why he he says, um, he continues to pray for their protection, he continues to pray that God would watch over them. And that's verses 6 through 19. But then in verse 20, he says something. He says, I do not ask for these only, these 11. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. So this is the portion of the prayer where Jesus begins to pray for people who are not yet saved. For the people who do not yet know him, who have not yet followed him and believed the gospel. And the thing that runs throughout this entire section of the prayer is that he prays that we would understand love and that we would be unified. And you say, why do you say we? I thought we were his disciples. Well, we are now, but when he's praying this prayer, I'm pretty certain everybody in this room, no matter how old you are, you weren't there then. I hope, right? That's, that's Okay, maybe it's quiet. Maybe you were there. I don't know. Um, but, but I will say this. All of us were in the future. So when Jesus prays, you have to recognize that when Jesus is praying for those who will believe, that includes you. That includes me if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So, so when he prays for those who will believe, he's praying for us. But then in the same token, he begins to pray for those who follow him. And that includes you today if you're a follower of Christ and how we're to live our lives. Okay, so when he jumps in to verse 20, we see Jesus' prayer is a lesson in petition for the redemption of those who do not know him. Look at, look at verse 20. It's a prayer, it's a petition for the redemption of those who do not know him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will 
believe. So again, Jesus is praying for people who will come to faith in Christ. So this is a picture of what it looks like for someone who desires, Jesus himself desires those who do not know him to come to know him. So it's a great example for you and for me on how we pray for those who do not know Jesus. Right? So he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you Father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. So Jesus's prayer is for unity. Notice this. This is interesting. Did you notice that when Jesus is praying for those who do not know him yet? I love that. That's expected, right? We're supposed to pray expecting something. Uh, You heard the announcement earlier. We went out, hit almost 2,700 homes Uh, last week, which is just an amazing thing. I know there were plenty of great conversations. I've heard of plenty of them, and I'm sure I'll be hearing more and more of them uh, over the next several weeks. But when we go out and do something like that, when we pray for God to do something, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, uh, he was speaking to a young minister one time who said, you know, I I give an invitation and nobody ever comes forward. And he says, well, son, do you pray about your invitation? He says, absolutely. And he says, do you pray expecting that God will actually do it? And he said, well, no, not really. And he said, well, then there's your problem. Jesus is praying for those who will come to know him. This is an expectant thing. You heard Mueller's prayer. They haven't come yet, but they will. He's believing in faith. So Jesus is praying for those who will come to know him. But what does he pray for? He doesn't say, Heavenly Father, I pray that they would make a decision or walk an aisle and then boom, sign a card and then we're good. Right? You notice he doesn't say, Father, I pray that they would come forward, sign a card, and be baptized. And then, boom, they're good. He doesn't say, Father, I pray that they'd walk an aisle, sign a card, be baptized, and join a Sunday school class. What he says is, Father, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. This is much more than just a decision, a one-time decision that's really emotional in that moment and then nothing really changes, which is what a lot of people think evangelism is. Jesus is praying for an inalter- or a completely altering, life-altering, earth-shattering moment in time that continues on for the rest of their life. Why do you say that? Because I could tell you this, I know me and I'm getting to know you and you know you and sometimes we're not easy to get along with. Sometimes I'm not easy to get along with, and yet what Jesus says is I'm praying for those who do not know me now, that when they come to know me, they will be unified with the people of God. That's something supernatural. That's something only God can do. So he's praying for unity, but then he says that they may be in us and we in them, that that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what's the reason? What's the reason why they should be unified? And we're going to talk a little more about this in a minute. So that the world, everyone else around, may know that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer is a prayer of unity. It's a prayer of, of certainty. And he says in verse 22, the glory that you have given me I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may, be, may, become, may become, 
excuse me, may become perfectly one. What is Jesus saying? Well, not only is he praying for a real earth-shattering decision that makes uh, those who do not believe, who come to believe, unified with the other people who are in part of the body of Christ. But he also prays that, now hear this, I know this is controversial, but people who come to faith in Jesus Christ should begin over time to look like Jesus. They should begin to be, it should begin to be noticeable in their life, what? That Jesus says, what's his prayer? That just as you are in me, that I am in them. He's praying not just for unity in the body, but he's also praying for life change. It changes the way that you speak. It changes, he changes the way that you act. He changes the way that you live married. He changes the way that you live single. He changes the way that you live as a parent. He changes the way that you live as a child. He changes everything about you. And Jesus' prayer is that they be unified with the people of God and they look more like him. And it's evident that he lives in them. He's not praying, Lord, I just pray that you save Billy. And that's it. He says, Lord, Father, I pray that you do something in his life that what once he didn't even want to set foot in a church, now he is unified with the people of God. And God, I pray that you do something in his life that is so apparent that his neighbors across the street know something's different. That's what we're praying for. When you pray for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like. It's not, Lord, save them. It's, Lord, change them in a way that is so noticeable that everybody knows it had to be you. Now, why this type of prayer, this type of prayer may be foreign to many of us. Uh, the truth is, is that as God's people praying for the lost, we commonly understand it's important. But like I said, many times we just say, Lord, bless them. Right? That's, we just hope that kind of covers everything. But what happens is when we pray for the lost, I love this, Jesus doesn't leave it out. He doesn't give us an out where we just pray for them. It's inferred in the prayer. Not only is Jesus' prayer a lesson in petition for the redemption of those who do not know him, but Jesus' prayer is a lesson in participation. For the redemption of those who do not know him. Look at verse 20 again. I do not ask for these only, the, the 11, but also for those who will believe in me, what? Through their word. That immediately, what does that mean? That means that his followers are supposed to share the gospel. They're supposed to share the good news. How did they, I said this a few weeks ago, how did they come to faith in Christ? Jesus says, I don't pray for these only, but also for those who will believe and who will come to believe through their living their life in such a way where people just look at them and say, wow, I need to know Jesus. That's not what he says. Should we live our lives in such a way where we never give cause for anyone to turn away from Christ? Absolutely. Should we live our lives in such a way as to only draw people in and show the joy that Christ gives us, even in the midst of hard times? Should we live our lives that way? Of course. But in the end, what does Jesus say? I pray for all those who do not believe yet, but will believe through their word. I know this is hard for so many of us, but how is the gospel shared? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 said, How will they hear unless someone preached to them? 
And I want to tell you something. He doesn't mean just me in that passage. So he says, through their word. And then he asks again, or he says again, may they all be one, just as we are one. Jesus' prayer is for unity, but then he gives a reason. He gives a reason. Now, I got told beforehand by a couple of people, they were ready for me to step on toes this morning. If you're not ready for that, tuck them back. That they may all be one. If you're a believer in Christ, that's us. That they may all be one. That they also may be in us, verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he says it again. I have given this glory to them in verse 23. I am in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. He says it twice in just a couple of sentences. What is the reason that God's people must be unified? Should God's people be unified because we should just all be able to get along? Well, we should all be able to get along. Should God's people be unified because we all agree on every single thing? No, that's not what unified means. Does it mean that we should be unified because we all like exactly how everything is done? No, that's not what it means at all. Unified means we have the same goal. And we have the same beliefs. And we have the same, as the scripture tells us, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And one God and Father and one Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be unified. That means even though we might disagree, we always love. Even though we might disagree, we will always walk, go, go from this place together. And he says that they may be unified. Why is it so important? Is it important that the church of God be unified because it just makes business meetings more comfortable? Because it doesn't. Business meetings are uncomfortable anyway. I'll just throw that out there. It's not because of that. And it's not because we just want everything to go well and everybody just smiles. And when you ask them, how are you doing this morning? They say, oh, I'm fine, brother, I'm fine. And inside you're thinking, don't talk to me. I remember what you said in 1973 at that meeting. And even though you didn't say my name and you didn't even refer to me at all, I'm assuming you meant me. And I know it's 50 years later, but I'm holding on to that one. Why? Why, why is that so wrong? Why is that such an issue? Well, Jesus tells us why it's an issue. He says that they may be one and it may be evident that I am in them so that the world may know, so that the world may believe that you, Father, have sent Jesus. What does that mean? You know why it's such an issue? And I need you to hear me, so lean in real close. It's an issue because when God's people can't get along and when God's people don't show evidence of Jesus living within them, what we tell the world is, hey, you need to be saved by Jesus even though he's not powerful enough to actually change me. Because I still act like the world. 
He says, you need to be unified so that the world may believe. So the first is, you got to share the word. The second is, you actually have to live it. That they may be unified. This is how we participate in it. But then he says, and, and I'm just going to, a little side note here. He says something in this passage that we could skip over really fast. And I think it may be one of the greatest truths in all of Scripture. And I, I just know, because it's always the case, there's somebody in this room that needs to hear this this morning. Verse 23, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That phrase. You know what that means? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, God the Father loves you with the same fullness of love that he loves Jesus himself what it says that the world may believe that they may know and that they may know that you have loved them just as you love me that is an amazing truth sometimes when you feel like you just can't live up newsflash none of us can sometimes when you falter and you fall down and you don't know if you can get back up, Jesus can lift you up. But sometimes when you feel broken and you just feel like nothing you do is right and there is no way that anyone in the world loves you, so there's definitely no way that God loves you. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, says that God the Father loves you with the same fullness of love that He loves His own Son. He loves you. He loves you. That's a little side note. He says, Father, verse 24, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. What does Jesus pray? Jesus says, and by the way, Father, I pray that all those who come to faith in me, that they get to all come to heaven with me, that they might see my glory. That they might see the glory that you have or that I, that I share with you. That, that I have because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is saying, I want all of my followers to get to see me for who I really am. I love that. The Apostle Paul says even now, if you're a believer in Christ, we see, but we, we see as though through a glass dimly. But one day we will see him face to face. That's what Jesus is praying for. That they would experience that. So why is that so important? It's important because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, make no mistake about it, this world is where we're to work, but this world is not our home. I love the old song, right? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. If heaven's not my home, oh Lord, what will I do? When we think about heaven and eternity and seeing Jesus face to face it changes the way we think about this world and about how we are called to live in this world so we have to participate in the redemption of the lost through the way that we live and through speaking the gospel your neighbor 
will not come to Christ because you mow your lawn on time. Your neighbor will not come to Christ because you feed their dogs when they're out of town. Your neighbor won't come to Christ because you take care of their house and watch over their house while they're gone. Your neighbor will come to Christ when you look at them in the face and say, let me tell you about what Jesus did for me. So I don't know if I can do that. I promise you, you can. I promise you, you can. And I promise you this, it gets easier every time you do it. So we're supposed to participate. So Jesus' prayer is a lesson in petition. Jesus' prayer is a lesson in participation. But then finally, Jesus' prayer is a lesson in process for the redemption of those who do not know him. Look at verse 25. You say, so how is this supposed to work then? Jesus is praying for those who do not know Christ that they would come to, or Jesus is praying that those who do not know him would come to know him and would live in unity and understand love. And then he's also inferring that it's, it's our job to live in that unity and to share that gospel so that they may come to faith in Christ. How does all this work? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging here to figure out what it means. In verse 25, right at the end, he says, Oh, righteous Father. I love that. He starts by referring to God as righteous, which means he knows that the Father is going to do exactly what he's praying that he will do because he's praying according to the Father's will. Oh, Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the first thing Jesus says is, the world does not know you. I don't know um, if you recognize this, if you realize this, but we live in a fallen and broken world. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, the Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So uh, Paul says it in Romans 1. Jesus says it right here. The world does not know you. But Then he says, but I know you. So Jesus says the world doesn't know you, but I know you. So why is that important? But John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That means that Jesus has been in the, is in the, an eternal relationship of equality and worship with God the Father. This is a very important doctrine for you to understand, the basic uh, doctrine to understand. Jesus did not come into existence the moment he was born in a manger. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. In John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning. What beginning? The beginning. The Word was with God, the Father, and was God. He was with God in the beginning. John is saying, in case you don't realize it, Jesus didn't come into existence in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus has always been. He's the eternal Son of God. So he says... They do not know you, but I know you. Now, why is that important? 
because John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say that, but then John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us something amazing. This word that we're hearing about who was with God and was God and he was with God in the beginning. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Jesus shows us the Father. So the world does not know God, but Jesus says, But I know you. And then what does He say? Then He says, And these know that you have sent me. John 16, 29 through 30, just one chapter before. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. And this is why we believe that you came from God. So the disciples, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, The world does not know you, Father, but I know you, Father, and then I have made myself known to them, and now they know who I am, which means in turn, they know who you are. You say, well, that's, that's a little confusing. Well, I have a little graph up here, I think. The process. The process is this. There are people who don't know God, but Jesus makes God known, and then we make Jesus known. That's the way it works. The world does not know God, but Jesus makes God known, and we make Jesus known to the world. And this is how people come to faith and uh, come to follow God and be in right relationship with God. It's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, why is that so important? Look at what he says in verse 26 I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known, which is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's the goal of all of redemptive history. That's what the Apostle Paul said is the mystery of the ages. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is your hope, that is my hope, that Christ is in in me, And that's Christ's prayer. That's Jesus' prayer for those who are lost and for you and I, even if you're a believer in Christ, is that Christ is in you because that is our only hope. But see, this morning, maybe this sounds strange because you can't pray for others to have and, and you can't share with others what you yourself do not have. You find it hard to pray for others to come in faith in Christ. You find it hard to pray for others to be changed forever. You find it hard to tell them the gospel. Sure, maybe you're nervous, but the other one that you need to ask yourself is, is it because I can't pray for and share what I do not have and do not ultimately believe? And maybe you're here this morning and that's you. You don't know Jesus Christ. You're struggling in um, to, to believe, you're struggling as to whether your salvation is real, all, all of these things. You're just you're struggling with all of that, and you want to know for certain. You can walk out of this place knowing for certain today. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is in you and that you are in Him, and you can be you can come to understand the love that He has for you, which is the same love that He has for Jesus Christ Himself. You can know him. You can trust that he died for you and rose from the grave. You can turn from your sin and put your faith and trust 
in him. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray for us. And Brother Dana and the, the praise team, and they're going to come up. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a time of invitation. And then at the close of that time of uh, altar call, I, I'm going to come back again like I have the last several weeks. It's probably going to become a pattern. 